This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Welcome to the programme, I'm Jake Cantor. Coming up this week, we take you behind the scenes of Wild Things, Sky One's bonkers new game show from the creator of Banzai. It's also been another bumper fortnight of news, a wheelchair over Rona Fairhead's plans to effectively do herself out of a job, and ITV's talks to take over John DeMole's Talpa Media. Finally, on the previous agenda will be two big new BBC One shows. We'll take a look at Poldark and the Billion Dollar Chicken Shop. That's all coming up on Talking TV for Broadcast. In the studio this week, we have a media journalist extraordinaire, Kate Bulkley. Welcome, Kate. Hi. Your second time on Talking TV. It's, I think it was about a year ago you came on, actually. My God, has it been that long? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Uh, also with us is Faraz Osman, the director of Lemonade Money. Is that it, director now, is it? Or creative yeah, director yeah, still? managing director of Lemonade managing Money. Director. And James looking after it now. So yeah. have, you been, have you been promoted? Uh, well, I mean, I've taken taken a bit of a uh, share in, in the company. Yeah, it's, uh, nice. it's going well. It's going in the right direction. We're enjoying ourselves. And you're fresh from your honeymoon. Yes, yes. So the only TV that I've watched is the Indian cricket, like the World Cup. And that's it. That's the that's, only thing that anyone's good, watching no? in India. <laughs> yeah, it is. Unless you're you're in England and watching it, which <laughs> that hasn't been as good. <laughs> We'll start with the BBC. The corporation has barely been out of the headlines over the past fortnight, as big names have been doing some big thinking about the BBC's future. After the Culture, Media and Sport Committee's measured report last week called for the abolition of the BBC Trust, the governing body's chairman, Rona Fairhead, waded into the debate in a landmark address at the Oxford Media Convention on Wednesday. She used her platform to call for the introduction of an independent BBC regulator post-charter renewal to fix what she described as a fault line in the blurred accountabilities between the Trust and BBC management. Uh, In the middle of this governance sandwich, Director-General Tony Hall also took to a stage this week to give an update on BBC Productions and talk about his vision to harness data to empower audiences. Uh, Kate, you were at the Oxford Media Convention. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's really only her second uh, really big public outing. And she's a very uh, professional very articulate woman. I mean, I have to say that I, I was impressed. Um, she delivered her speech a little fast at certain points. I think that, she, you know, this was a real media conoscenti crowd, a lot of public policy guys, people actually know pointy their... Heads. Yeah, pointy as They know their onions, so to speak, about all this. But I think that she made an incredibly savvy move. I mean, it was definitely a politically timed move. And she basically was saying, let's not defend the status quo here, because that's not, that's not going to be a winner. So she's basically just moving the BBC trust, you know, further away from from the BBC governance board, the board, you know, the way it was before, even further. So it's like it's, she's calling for an independent regulator, but basically it's it's just moving where the BBC trust was already, moving it a little bit further, One away. Step further away. It's really it's a, I thought it was politically very savvy. If you were a betting man or woman, you wouldn't be backing the BBC trust to to survive charter renewal, would you for us? One of the problems with the BBC trust is that it's called the BBC trust and and I think part of the issue with this is the public need to need to be reminded and really feel like they own the BBC. And once you decouple those two things, it's it's important to figure out how we're going to do a good PR job to make sure that the public understand that they're paying for it. It's it's up to them to decide how it works and how it's put together. And an independent regulator is all well and good, but as soon as it starts feeling like that's a government-controlled thing rather than a public-controlled thing, I think you're going to get yourself into a little bit of muddy waters. So I think that once, if, if we can kind of get those lines right, I you know I think it's it's great that you can feel like there's there's more of a a, a 
guard and a, a bit of a hedgerow between the BBC itself and, and the governing body of it that, that feels like it's part of the public. Yeah, but, but we need to get that right. already been a hedgerow. I mean, what, what she's trying to do is not throw it in the lap of Ofcom. Exactly. That's what she's trying exactly. to do. So the idea is that they would be an independent regulator, but it ain't going to be Ofcom, which I think is why it's so politically savvy. She's basically saying, we're going to make more of a distinction between you know what is now called the trust, which is supposed to be the regulator, and by the way, also the champion of the BBC, which has never been something that works in my mind. And basically, she's saying, let's not do that. Let's move more of the functions back into the BBC executive that are obviously for the BBC executive. Beef up that board. Create put a more sort of independent unitary board with yeah, the chairman, basically. Ma- yeah, make a, a proper board in the BBC with a proper chairman, which is supposed to be championing the BBC and overlooking the executives, right? And have more non-executives. Like he's already, like, you know, Tony Hall's already done this. Howard Stringer is a non-executive director, right? I mean, it's a good idea. So the idea, I think, is just making it more like more like a regular company, basically, but not saying, oh, well, we need it. We need to have Ofcom as the independent regulator. No, no, no. We'll have an independent regulator, but it's not going to be Ofcom. But she doesn't like the idea that the uh, culture committee raised last week about this public service broadcasting commission, which will have some say over the license fee and would have the power to effectively withhold funding from the BBC. She's not keen on that, is she? No, and I mean, that makes total sense because the whole idea is not to give the government, you know, the whip hand over the BBC. That's where you get into very dangerous territory, right? When when you can have yeah, politicians... It's got, protect, it's got to protect independence. <laughs> right, exactly. And what about Tony Hall? You're a, you're a big fan of data, aren't you? I am a big Kate. fan of data, yep. Is BBC doing enough? Is it doing it well? Well, I think it was so funny because it was like Tony Hall gets up and says, hey, we're going to embrace big data. It's like... Well, gee, really? There's some guys that are ahead of you on You're this. About five years later, yeah, maybe. <laughs> exactly. So it's good. I'm glad he's doing it. But I mean, you know, all he has to do is like go and have a little tour of Sky IQ. There are 400 people over at Sky that have been crunching data for I don't know how many years now, based on sort of when they bought Experian. You know, they've just moved into that space so rapidly. You know, even David Abraham at Channel, Channel 4. Channel 4 a, bit, a big He's been doing that for two years now? Is it three years? Uh, Tony Hall was on the Channel 4 board as I, well. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, oh, gee, well, I guess you got your idea. But, you know, it would have been nice if you'd done it before. One thing I'll say historically about that is I remember when Eric Huggers was actually running, you know, BBC Technology, whatever they called it at that point. Uh, and he was always saying, why don't we do more with data? Why can't we get that integrated more? So... You know, yes, they should do it. They've got lots of data coming from my player and other places. But, you know, get your skates on. And any other tidbits from Oxford? Any other tidbits? Oh, Ed, Ed Vese. Oh, my God, he's unbelievable. He is such a good politician. I mean, of course he was saying all these marvellous things about, you know, how good everything was, including local television. A stunning success. <laughs> a stunning success. Was tongue in cheek. That's the quote. <laughs> well, you know, he's you know he he's the kind of guy who can say those kind of things with a straight face. And the people were laughing in the audience. And the chair said you know, why you're making you're making fun of this very serious question about local television. He goes, I'm stating facts. I can't help that they're laughing. I mean, it was we were all left wondering, is he kidding or is he not? But is he know. just Boris Johnson light? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well I suppose he wasn't gonna tear down Jeremy Hunt right there as you know on the no, evening election his campaign. Former boss. That's enough pointy headedness for us this week. Uh, we'll head over to ITV now. Broadcast revealed last week that the commercial broadcaster is in takeover talks with the voice producer at Talpa Media. It will be the latest in a long line of acquisitions that has helped boost ITV's production revenues 9% to nearly £1 billion last year. This figure was revealed in ITV's full-year results on Wednesday, which painted a very healthy picture. The commercial broadcaster's pre-tax profits increased 39% to £605 million on the back of revenues of nearly £3 billion. 
Uh, Chief Executive Adam Crozier was naturally upbeat, uh, but he couldn't resist having a gripe at the BBC for loading its schedules with goodies ahead of charter renewal. This, Crozier said, is largely to blame for ITV's ratings woes last year and in the start of 2015. Uh, Kate, let's start with Talpa, shall we? Uh, Do you think that would be a shrewd investment? Um, it's going to be expensive investment. It's going to be one of the bigger potentially, investments he's Potentially done. about £500 million, which would be nearly possibly, the same value as all three media. Yeah, or possibly even a little bit more. I mean, uh, John DeMaul is not somebody who likes to you know, sell his assets for cheap. I think it would be shrewd. I think it is expensive. I think one of the things that the city always worries about with um, Mr. Croizier is you don't want to sort of make too many big bets that are going to be capital sucks, you know, too quickly. So what they've liked about his current strategy with buying sort of bits and pieces of independent production companies and smaller ones, even though left field's quite quite big. But I mean, the other ones have been relatively small, is that they've been easily digestible from you know a capital standpoint. This is a kind of a, a step change. On the other hand, it's got some, you know, some assets that ITV lacks in the sense of if his big strategic moves are global formats and programming that travels, well clearly, you know, Talpa can deliver that kind of stuff with things like the voice and you know, the big brother sort of heritage. So I think, yes, I think it's a shrewd move. It, it's going to be capitally intensive, let's put it that way. Fraz, what do you make of ITV? Remarkably resilient results, I, given the ratings like problems. bulletproof, don't they? You kind of feel like you're ready to kind of go, oh, they've not had a very good year. And then suddenly they go, oh, yeah, 40, profit's up 40%. I mean, Adam's done an incredibly good job of of almost having one protect the other, where the, where the channel's not doing very well, ITV Productions is doing incredibly well. And, and that, that kind of shrewd... That's the strategy in action. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. He, he wanted to make sure that half of ITV's revenues come from sources other than traditional advertising. It's 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 great. Not only has it worked, but other broadcasters are now replica- replicating it with what Channel 4 are doing with their growth fund and what the BBC are doing with with spinning off um, BBC Productions. It's the, it's the right move for the current climate of, of where broadcasting is. So, you know, hats off to him. He's done the right thing and it's, he's making it work. You know, this is this is lovely, isn't it? Can you imagine being in a situation where ITV have a problem with finding a shiny floor TV show? So let's let's buy the company that has you know has the greatest heritage in making this right. I mean, that's that's such a luxury to have right there. Um, I, I would say though that people keep saying Big Brother and the Voice, so I'm I'm interested to see what else is in that pipeline. You know, he's he seems to have a very uh, very lucrative company based on those two. Big names. And Utopia. Be... Did Utopia do well? No, it tanked. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I mean, what's he done lately? Yes, yeah, so that is a, that is a question. You're right. But also, I mean, what, you know, we, we talk a lot about Rising Star, and it'll be. I, I don't know what the final figures were for the development of that, but you look at the development costs of that versus the investment costs of buying something like Talpa Media. You know, it's it's about where you where you want to spend your money to solve a problem. Saturday night and and on big shiny floor TV shows are really important to ITV. They need to solve that problem. Let's spend some money and get it solved. And what do you make of uh, ITV laying blame on the BBC for its ratings problems? It's broadcast politics, isn't it? Oh, I mean, it's like, definitely. Yeah, it's, I, it, I, I think that you know you need a little deflect bit of attention that, away from what's actually going on, really. Is, is that is that the is that the strategy? Well, I mean, you know, the thing is that linear viewing is falling overall. I mean, full stop. You know, it's. I mean, this is this is going to be a progressive decline. I mean, you know, we're not going to get away from that. Fragmentation is here. You know, other devices are here. Blah blah blah. So, I mean, we all know that. It's a question of how fast and how much, how quickly it's going to start hurting you. But I think this whole thing of oh well, they have too much stuff on air, so we couldn't compete. I mean, come on. <laughs> 
Uh, no, he's a, he's a savvy man. Uh, we'll move on. Finally this week, it's our commissioner of the fortnight. Uh, BBC One has lured Tracy Ullman back to the UK from America to front a new sketch show. Ullman is best known for Fox's The Tracy Ullman Show, which ultimately gave rise to The Simpsons. Uh, Channel 4, meanwhile, has turned its back on the uh, sketch show. Comedy boss Phil Clark believes that viewers find it harder to invest in the genre in the on-demand age. Faraz, what do you make of this? The thing that springs to mind, particularly with what Channel 4 is saying around sketch shows, is if you look at what the US are doing with Saturday Night Live, John Oliver, um, Key and Peele, they, they've done a really good job in the US of taking sketches, putting them online, using them to promote the channel, be it Comedy Central or be it NBC or whatever it might be. And it feels like we're almost a, a little bit behind with that. And it would be nice to see sketch shows being commissioned with that online digital world in mind where it's like well here's a sketch it's really funny by the way you can see more on our broadcast channels over here so not getting that right would be a mistake and i think that we need to see more of that from from british comedians and british voices it gets shared good sketches get shared online and then those sketches i mean the john oliver show is a great example of that that show is is pretty much the success story has been by people sharing his huge monologues and putting them on facebook and then everybody going oh there's a show on hbo where i can see more of this and that's why that show is but isn't that slightly different to a sort of traditional sketch show where you have characters but sketch shows sketch shows are effectively lots of three minute gags put mm. together and you get if you take the best which work key, well in an internet world exactly like and you take you take saturday night live and you take key and peel key and peel is a huge success story internationally and the reason for it is because they are very shareable sketches and that has helped comedy central continue to push forward new formats and, and that new talent and i think that if you can do that that's i think that that's where the the, the Maguana show on, on when it was on Channel 4, that didn't really happen. You didn't see people sharing her sketches along the way. Whereas now she's been doing stuff on Charlie Brooker. I have been seeing those little clips, people clipping them out and putting them on Vine and putting them on Instagram and, and sharing them along the way because they're funny and you can do that. And so she's she's just been commissioned to make a pilot for BBC exactly. as well. So. And I think I think that that's that's right. I think that if we can get that right, that's that works in this comedy world. But you need a good mixed comedy diet of of good sketch shows, good sitcoms. You know what what ABC are doing with Modern Family again is you know they're they're nailing it. And if you can get a good mix of it, that's the way to do comedy. So Channel Four should think twice before battening down the hatches and uh, saying no to sketch shows. I think I think particularly when you look at what they're doing with shorts and comedy blaps. You know, if they can get that right, where there's a there's a symbiotic relationship between people sharing their content online, that will help their new platform with, with all four, and it will help you know bolster their their comedy output, where people feel like you know people shared Toast of London so much, and like you know the few, the few short gags they clipped out along the way. You know, if you can do that with with self-contained sketches and use that to help promote the Channel Four comedy brand, I think that's a no-brainer. You're absolutely right. I mean, they 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 start with the shorts. As for as you say, that's the really thing that's shareable, blah blah blah. And then if it works, then they commission something for the the channel. I guess that's a great strategy. What do you know much about Tracy Ullman? Well, when I think about Tracy Ullman, I always think of The Simpsons because that's where it started. And it's sort of like, well, that's interesting. Gee, she's been away. How long has she been out of this country now? Fifteen years? Years? Twenty uh, I, years? I'm I mean, not, I don't know the answer. I mean, it's really. like the eighties, you know, late eighties, maybe when she disappeared. But so you know, but I mean, yeah, she's like really premier talent. Whether she'll come back and do something interesting. You know, again, here, I don't know, but certainly sort of that idea of, uh, 
you know, sort of animation and, you know, her kind of funny humor. I think it'd be great to have her back. So we'll see. And I think that that's, there, there's a huge opportunity there to find some new British animation talent. You know, if, if they've got that show there, people are going to go, oh, maybe we can find the next Simpsons here. I hope Shane takes an opportunity to kind of speak to some animation houses and, and see if there's an, a new breakthrough animation that we can find Thank in the UK. We're getting an animation tax credit, hopefully, right? Is mm, that coming there through? There is an animation exactly. tax credit. Exactly. So, you know, that'll help too. So Stars I think that's line. great. Animation is like really good stuff. Uh, that's your news for this week. Thanks to Kate and Faraz. Up next, ever wondered what a television hybrid of Springwatch and Total Wipeout might look like? Well, wonder no more. Sky One is preparing to answer your call in the shape of Wild Things, a bonkers game show that gets contestants to dress up like woodland creatures and run blind through various challenges. The format is the brainchild of Banzai creator Gary Monaghan and is presented by Kate Humble and Jason Byrne. Gary will join us in a moment to reveal all, but first, let's find out what contestants are doing in this madcap challenge. Hey there, how are you? I'm on a swing, suspended above rotten apples, maggots and horrible gungy stuff. So you better get this piece of fruit and knock it to the ground as quick as you can, right? Just don't drop that bloody bat. I can't see. I can only do as I'm told. We'll try and get out of here as quick as possible. Right. That's enough talking. It's time to drop some people into some big barrels of badness. (laughs) Oh, no, man. This ain't good. Just be calm, Dad, because you make me not calm and I'm really not calm. (laughs) Leon, I've just farted in my suit if it's any consolation. Oh, it smells like I have. Uh, welcome, Gary. Thanks for coming in. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> nice to be here. Sky One director Adam McDonald described uh, Wild Things as a daft slice of genius. Thank talk God us for through. That. Talk, talk us through. <laughs> <laughs> he did commission it, so I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, assuming yeah. it was going to be God uh, bless uh, him. nice words. <laughs> <laughs> Where did it all come from? Because it, it genuinely is. It's a bit mad, isn't it? Where did it all come? There's a short answer and there's a very long answer. Let's go which, somewhere in between. Shoot, okay. <laughs> I saw this guy years ago. It was this crazy uh, Canadian guy called Troy. And uh, he invented an anti-grizzly bear suit. Have you ever seen it on YouTube? It's very, no. very funny. Why you'd ever do that, I don't know why. But it's basically a big suit of armour. And he shot a series of clips of him being absolutely annihilated by tree trunks. He's been thrown down a mountain and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, God, that's amazing. If you could have that suit, you could do anything in a kind of slapsticky kind of uh, game show. So originally I thought this idea of, well, I'll get these suits and uh, we'll just do crazy things to people in the suits. But of course, it, that never went anywhere. So, uh, <laughs> so then a few years later, I did a show called My Little Princess for E4, much forgotten. But within that, we used a lot of animal uh, costumes. And we had a one game where <laughs> we dressed up our princes in mouse costumes and they Similar could, to the anti-bear one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, just it was just, it was a mouse costume, but right. they, they couldn't see inside these costumes. Okay. And it was basically a game of chicken in a mouse costume, and they had to run at each other. And whoever chicken out first lost. Right? It, it, it was a quite a funny game. I then thought that's quite funny that people not be able to see and stuff. And then I kind of combined the two, and I thought, oh, right. So the suits an animal costume, <laughs> and uh, they're being guided in this animal costume by their partner. So that's the long answer. Uh, <laughs> the short answer is uh, I really loved It's a Knockout in the 70s and 80s. Of course. In particular, I loved 
people doing silly things, but incredibly seriously. That's my number one thing. I love that. <laughs> You've built this whole world, haven't yeah. you? Where did you film it and uh, and talk us through how you came up with that that space, I guess? Well, I, mean, I looked around the M25 <laughs> for, for, uh, for Woodlands. We had to have a number of things in order to make this a practical uh, location for the show. It needs to feel not too uh, manicured. You know, it had to still feel quite wild. It needed to have a number of spaces which we'd have to build these quite big constructions within. In the end, we had three areas where we built very big games areas, which should have equally beautiful backdrops. And then the third and probably the most important thing, it needs to have some kind of transport infrastructure for us to be able to get, uh, get all the kit in and out. You know, it's, it's, a, big, it's a big team. And um, so in the end, I found this place called Rushmere Country Park just outside Leighton Buzzard. And it's a beautiful, beautiful park. And they, I've got to say, were just absolutely fantastic and we completely looked out it's a privately run country park so it's not run by the national trust or not by any big government organization they run it as like a a working wood so that gave you some freedom they have areas of the wood which is still bits which they, which they have to farm you know they, they cut down trees and use it for timber and stuff so they gave us this whole section of the country park Fantastic for uh, to do with what we wanted, you yeah. know. And we kept on saying, uh, "Can we can we cut down this bit and do that bit?" And they go, "Oh yeah, fine, that's fine." We couldn't <laughs> believe it. And tonally, it's very warm. Yeah, the casting is clearly quite important to the show yeah, because everyone's extremely likable yeah. and very funny as well. Mm-hmm. Talk us through that process. You know, right at the beginning of the process, yeah, you know, I talked about it to knock out before about you know, my love of slapstick and, and entertainment shows, we realised very early on that just having that slapstick thing, just having people in squirrel costumes running into each other or running into trees is very, very funny, but it it's will not get... Enough. It's not enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's not enough. So, you know, I always think, I always said there's like, there was two pillars of comedy. You know, one was the slapstick, which hopefully the, the kids uh, will really love, and, and adults as well. But the second pillar of comedy is the relationship between the two players, the teams, the pairs. That relationship, you get to know people uh, in this show way more than you do in any other game show I've, I've ever worked on. You know, and I and think that's part of the experience that they go through. Because when you're in that costume, you know, it's it's uh, sensory uh, deprivation. You know, they they can't. They see genuinely your, can't see anything. They genuinely can't see anything, and you know, and they really really can't really hear much around them apart from in their ear. They can hear their partner, and it feels a very private experience. You know, which we're eavesdropping on. So as a consequence, you kind of get these um, conversations, which feel very natural and real and quite funny. And it's just yeah, the way people. They are quite intimate some of those conversations because they're they're whispering as well and that adds to the intimacy doesn't it yeah yeah um I love the the trick of of doing the reveal at the end because mm. uh, half the teams that you don't you don't see them they're in the costume the whole episode right, right until the end when they they lift their heads off was that always part of the original plan do you know what that that was a very brave decision by uh, by Sky Adam and uh, and Phil um at Sky Philica Jones, uh, Philica that, Jones yeah. and Adam McDonald. You know, I was really up for that. A lot of people were saying that we need to see these people because, you know, uh, if you want to care about them, you want to see what they're like and we, you want to see them talking uh, throughout the show. And I was kind of, oh, it kind of breaks the spell. And 
And it was talk about putting cameras in the suit. And I said, like, no, 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 that's not funny. Um, I think you've cracked it. Because it does add to the intrigue of it all. Yeah, so yeah. I was so delighted when Adam absolutely, uh, I think it might have been his idea. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to claim it. Um, it was Give his idea. Credit. Definitely his idea. <laughs> uh, that, and rightly, we keep the suits on, right? And we have this great reveal right at the end. Of, this is who you've been yeah. watching, you know. Um, uh, and d- dare I say it, the dreaded words, health and safety. Because obviously, I mean, they're all, I mean, they're, they're, they're genuinely knocking into things and falling yeah. over. And it, oh yeah, and they're whacking each other on the heads with, with what appears to be wooden sticks. <laughs> Yeah it, yeah, it feels dangerous at times. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, again, I was very, very fortunate to have uh, working on the show Andrew Norgate, who's uh, you know massively experienced in in physical game shows. You know, did Wipeout for a, a number of years. You know, did Gladiators. So you know, he's he is very much the king of these kind of big physical game shows. You know, what he doesn't know about health and safety ain't worth knowing. You know, so he, he knows how far we can go. We work very closely with health and safety as well, mm. of course. If you kind of bring them in at a very early stage of the process, of the creative process, which we did, you can often problem solve together. Well, what do you want? What do you want to achieve on screen? And they, they, you know, they are there to help you as well. You know, so uh, they add to the process in a way. So, so absolutely, yeah. But, uh, but so Andrew really uh, was brilliant at uh, negotiating those health and safety uh, uh, hurdles. You know? Yeah, and just finally, quickly. I mean, this is quite unlike anything on television. Do you think more risks... Is that, a, is that a good thing? I think that's a good thing. thing. <laughs> I mean, in my view, it's a good thing. Um, good. Do you think more risks like this should be taken in entertainment? Well, you, you know. Commissioners often, uh, you know, use those words. We're looking for something new, unique, innovative, fresh, mm. and that's a noble ambition. And but sometimes, you know, it just does feel like uh, it, the stuff that that's is commission ends up being disappointingly derivative. So I think you know you've really got to you know take your hats off to Sky for going for this. You know, entertainment shows, big entertainment shows like this, are quite difficult to get off the ground. There's often a sort of flight to safety to be more conservative in what you do, which can make those entertainment shows feel a little bit samey. And I think Sky very bravely, you know, had a go at uh, at this and uh, uh, gone for something which looks very different. Hopefully, in a kind of multi-channel environment, it, it will it will stand out. It will feel quite iconic. And you know, I think it's you know it's quite YouTubey as well. You mm. know, there's some, there's a lot of moments in I'm it. Sure that, I'm sure it'll yeah. be picked up online. Well, that. you know, I, I know um, you know I've I've got three young boys uh, who absolutely love the show, and because uh, I come back with obviously cuts of the show, and they came on and try and share it with their they mates. Get, they get a sneak peek. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> well, yeah. uh, all the best with it. I hope Thank it goes you well. So much. Uh, Wild Things is produced by IWC, Mad Monk, and Group M Entertainment. It begins on Sky One on the 15th of March at 7 p.m. Previous time now, and joining me back on the Talking TV sofa is Faraz Osman. First up, something of a tradition on Talking TV. Yes, another Access documentary. This time, BBC One is taking us inside KFC for the billion-dollar chicken shop. The three-part series is made by Wild Pictures, the indie behind ITV's successful prison documentaries, including Strange Ways. Here we meet Beth, a 17-year-old college dropout, who has just joined a branch of KFC in Manchester. I'm on drive-through too. Hi, welcome to KFC. Can I take your order, please? Is that large? So I take the order through the headset, try and make them spend more money. Yeah, would you like to have two hot wings on tap for 99p? Would you like two hot wings for 99p? 
Would you like to go large with that? Thank you. Someone said about me once, if they could make a replica of me and put it in every single store, they completely would. It's got that in it. Is this just a, another replica of every other inside access documentary for us? I, I think it's quite good that we're getting really good, strong access docs. It does, it does feel like more and more corporations are... I wonder if it's like the work of Undercover Boss, where like they've seen that, that's worked. More and more companies want to open their doors to, to getting their brand on, on air and, and like loosen the kind of PR shackles along the way. I mean, this, this, this has a few odd things when you're watching it. There's, there's not really any clear mention about the Americanism of of KFC. So you don't really get a sense that this is a big American company that's come to the UK. I didn't even think about that. Exactly. You just kind of feel like, oh, this is KFC. It's, it's a British thing. And it's obviously not. It's a big American company, as far as I'm aware. Apart it's, from the colonel, which they, they delve into his history a little bit. Yeah, but you want to know more about what the Americans think about how we are using their brand, and I think. And, and then on, on top of that, obviously, the kind of there's, there's two big elephants in the room. One is how much the PR guys are behind the scenes kind of pulling the <laughs> levers. And, and the other one is, is obviously what Channel 4 did, with, with Chicken Shop, and you know, this is this is there, there is a feeling that we've seen this all before. There's not really an exploration into the obesity crisis and and what what the you know how these guys are working there. So there's there are a few things that uh, that feel like they're missing along the way, but it's still fascinating. You're still getting what those good access stocks do, which is feeling like you're getting a sense of British culture and and you know the unseen faces that that kind of run the UK in, in effect. And you know there are there are some great characters in it. The community up in is it Doncaster? I think it's Doncaster. It's um, yeah. I, uh, it, but the, the community I there, that, the, the community there that are campaigning against the KFC exactly, coming to yeah, the town. I mean, they're, they're great characters in their own right, and um, and that's a really good, strong story. Um, and you do feel like you're getting some some honesty from from the brand about what they're trying to do and what's going on. So and it's, it's Brian, a great the watch. inspector. Yeah, Brian, it's a, he's great. He's brilliant, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's I think probably the best thing about the show Absolutely. in my view. Absolutely, and actually, you you wonder if if PR companies and and um, like the corporate heads that want to do this are getting more and more savvy about finding characters that they know will work really well on TV and putting them forward as kind of going, oh, this person does this and this person does that, and you know they are really really strong characters. Some of the managers they've got there are great. The I, I will say I don't think the managing director of KSC comes off very well. He doesn't seem like a very likable person when I was watching it. So that's that'll be interesting to see what the fallout from that is. He sort of slipped into management jargon every yeah. now and then, which is always dangerous on television I think. absolutely but I mean full disclosure we we are Nando's video agency we do a lot of work with them and, and they are really I would argue I would say this but they are the big chicken shop success story and and to have a whole documentary with where Plug they don't alert. even get but it's but it's true it's like everyone talks about Nando's and to have a to have a documentary an access documentary about a chicken shop where there's another chicken shop they do mention Nando's has, the truck driver mentions yeah Nando's. there's like one passing reference to it I've, <laughs> I saw and I was a bit like you know that's that's the real phenomenon where they've taken chicken and chips and turned it into an absolute cultural phenomenon and yet you still got these kind of drive-throughs which is an American brand which feels a little bit dated I genuinely was quite surprised that they're growing I was expecting this to be a whole KFC in crisis stock and, and actually it seems like they're doing quite well but it's a great watch I'm surprised that it's two parts or maybe it's even three. more it's three parts mm. which is great for KFC the more you know that's that's a huge advertising cost that they save there but um so it'd be good to see what else they're going to uncover along the way but what did you make of Ralph Little I thought he was a very irritating in yeah. the first 15 minutes but then he sort of he sort of fades into the background and some of the characters start to come through and he does less talking doesn't I, he? I didn't I didn't get it was him until the credits rolled so I was quite surprised to see his name pop up at the end um but yeah I mean it's you know he did um 
he, he took you he took you through it there's there's nothing kind of crazy surprising the thing that irritated me this is a really small thing and I'm being really pernickety now but the thing that irritated me was the Astons that came up with a typewriter and the, that's where I'm like this feels like an that's that's an old dated mechanism but you know other than that it's a, it's a great watch it's it's well produced um They've they're obviously been doing it for a while because this episode is a lot about Valentine's Day and unless they turn it around in a week, um, <laughs> I, I think that they've been filming this and and for, over, it yeah. for a while. Well, wild pictures they always bring a sort of journalistic rigor to the work they do and uh, that, uh, that does come through. But I do take your point about uh, some of the the PR. There is a PR exercise here sure. and you can see it. I yeah, think. I mean that's why they've done it and I don't think the audience is under any illusion that that KFC you know, uh, suddenly some camera crew turned up and started filming. I think the audience are pretty savvy to know that it's done in, in, in collaboration. But it does feel honest and it does feel like, you know, KFC have done a good job of, of opening the doors and, you know, showing, you know, they, show, they, they do the right thing. They show the chicken farm. Here's lots of chickens. We're not going to show you them being gassed and killed, but we're going to show you them happy and breeding. And you kind of get enough to kind of feel like you're getting access, but not so much to feel like, oh my God, I'm never going to eat a KFC again. So it's it's done the right thing for all parties concerned. And, you know, let's hope that it means more brands open their doors. Because I think that the public are genuinely fascinated with how these brands operate and and do it what, what they do. Oh, I'm sure we'll cover it on the, here on Talking TV if, if there are more brands opening their doors. We should inside, place some bets. Inside like, Nando's. I, th- I think that's coming from you. I, I know that they've had a number of requests and so we'll see what happens. <laughs> okay, the Billion Dollar Chicken Shop opens its doors on the 18th of March at 9pm. Uh, last on the agenda is BBC One's remake of classic 1970s period drama Poldark. The series is produced by Mama Screen and stars Aidan Turner as British officer Ross Poldark, who returns to his native Cornwall after the American Revolutionary War. Here, on the cliffs above a raging Atlantic, Poldark talks to his cousin Verity about losing his Lady Elizabeth to another man. You would have been surprised to hear about Elizabeth. I had no option on the go. It was strange how it happened. One moment she barely noticed Francis, the next... She notices mine, his house, his estate. That was uncalled for. The wedding's in a fortnight. So soon. I wish I could help you, my dear. I must find my own way out of this. <laughs> uh, I think that sums it up quite nicely, actually. All strings and earnest breathiness. <laughs> You know, you know what this—the the thing that I couldn't get out of my head while watching this was *Made in Chelsea*. It, it feels like a period drama version of *Made in Chelsea*. There's like lots of glances to the camera, and I'm, you know, I'm expecting any time to see, you know, some some indie band crop up and uh, and do the soundtrack. It's if and and that I probably shouldn't say that because that distracted me throughout the whole of it. The main character feels like Mark Francis, and and it's like you know he's he landed the role of a lifetime. He's very watchable, Aidan Turner. I'll, I'll give him that. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's got presence. Yeah, it's 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 fine. I personally, I'm not a huge period drama fan. That's just a personal thing. I can see the merit of them. I understand why people like them. But you know, we're we're in a stage where we've got Wolf Hall. We've we've got Downton that's still doing well. And you know, is there room for another one? You know, this is this is a remake, right? There was a, yeah. an old so show it was that in was 1970s, incredibly popular. Was, yeah. um, it, there was two series in the 1970s, right? Massively popular. Yeah, I, I I don't know if this is going to reach the same level of success. But it's, you know, it's an interesting story, but it's, you know, it, it, I just can't get over the fact that it feels like Made in Cornwall. Well, you, you mentioned Wolf Hall. Well, you look, have you seen any of Wolf Hall? Yeah, I've seen bits of Wolf Hall. My, my better half is, you know, she's addicted to the books and, and, you know, she's been watching the show religiously. What's What I found quite interesting is that I think Wolf Hall's really 
it's going to sound a bit odd, but it's, it's dark, not in, not in its tone, but actually in the lighting and kind of watching it, you kind of need to turn up the brightness on your TV to actually see it. Whereas this is like the other way. This almost feels like it's overlit and it's, it feels a little bit too clean. And it's very sophisticated, Wolfhall, mm. and very layered, and there's lots going on. This feels uh, much more simplistic compared to that. Yeah, that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's not. Uh, it's not. It's not a huge criticism. But, yeah, I kind of, I kind of think that there's space to kind of do, do a number of different things. But I, you know, and obviously this, that's kind of where Downton is as well. But I just, I just feel like this, this hasn't got the legs that those, those have. I got more into it further down the line, but the acting is a, is a little bit hammy. Um, uh, the thing is, I couldn't understand why everyone's got a sort of Cornish burr apart from Aidan Turner. Yeah, we've well, been in America. Come on, know. he grew no. up in Cornwall. <laughs> Maybe I'm... Is it because he's part of the aristocracy? Is that why? I have no idea. Like I said, me, me and period dramas, we don't, we're not the greatest bedfellows. <laughs> and I kind of think that this is one that I watched it. I, I kind of started, like any good drama, when the characters started unravelling, you kind of start getting into it towards the end. But I, I almost think that you could spoof this quite, quite comfortably. Um, and it yeah. has been done. Do you remember Vic Greaves and Bob Mortimer did uh, Pole Dark on mopeds? Oh no, I haven't seen that. That was, uh, that was a rip off. Let's of bring the that 1970s. back. 70s, yeah, it was. Uh, it's fantastic. You should look at it on YouTube. <laughs> and it, it, my only other gripe was um, I, I lived in Cornwall for three years and went to university. Oh, so this is personal. Yeah, this is this gets personal. <laughs> yeah, they're they're standing on the cliff edges, you know, doing their nattering and talking about what, whatever's going on. Their their lost loves and things like that. No wind. Cornwall is fundamentally a windy place, very windy, particularly if they're standing on the edge of a cliff. So I don't understand what they what the producers did with the wind. Uh, open your window while you're watching it. That's, that's the advice that you need. Polled up begins on the eighth of March on BBC One at nine pm. And we've reached the end of the road for this episode. Uh, thanks for taking the ride with us. Uh, thanks also to my guests, Gary Monaghan, Kate Bulkley, and Faraz Osman. I've been Jake Cantor, and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Strangely, I've got to get back to um, to my house because I've got a big delivery of heads arriving. <laughs> of, wood, of woodland creature heads. Yes, Brilliant. Yes. And uh, I, I don't want them to leave them outside. <laughs> no, I've, got, I've got about 20 woodland creature heads being delivered to my house. <laughs> 